Welcome to the Everyday Whiteness podcast series, The Uncomfortable Conversations on Well-Meaning White People. This podcast is primarily for white listeners. It's also a podcast for all listeners who unconsciously operate through a lens of whiteness, regardless of the body that you inhabit. It's not meant to shame you for being white or thinking white, but rather to support you in having more awareness of the impact of your whiteness as a cultural code of conditioning. My name is Guru Nishan. I'm a disruptor of cultural indoctrination and actively support the dismantling of false identity by curating uncomfortable conversations on taboo topics hiding in plain sight. I stand committed to the ongoing dismantling of internalized whiteness within myself and to make visible what is often rendered invisible in business, community, and culture. Our guest for today is Anika B. Ward. For over 20 years, Anika has worked to advance equity and eliminate disparities through a strategic relationship-based approach to transforming systems. A trusted advisor with a career spanning private, nonprofit, and career sector Anika has advanced statewide initiatives centering equity and inclusion within education, science, workforce development, community investments, cultural arts, and community health and well being. A daughter of St. Paul's historic Rondo neighborhood, Anika's approach to leadership development reflects her values for the richness that comes from diverse perspectives, cultures, and communities. Anika holds a master's in human services and bachelor's in human resource management from Concordia University, St. Paul, Minnesota. She spends her free time enjoying music, art, sports, and nature with her family. I want to welcome Anika to this podcast and um, share with listeners that uh, you and I went to high school together and we got to reconnect about a year ago or so. And I've always been connected to your family in some capacity just from high school. And you are the uh, founder and creator of Sankofa Leadership Network. And it's brilliant and you're brilliant. And it's just a real treat to have you here. I want to thank you. Thank you. Well, it's a treat to be here with you. Um, speaking to the particular focus, which is well-meaning whiteness um, or well-meaning white people, um, mm -hmm. I always like to just start off with asking, what does that even mean when you hear that to you? Uh, so when I hear the term well-meaning whiteness, I'm thinking about, or even when I hear the term like everyday whiteness, because I, I think of those in two, two different ways. Mm. There's thing just, so when I'm considering what whiteness, the way that I use the term whiteness, I'm thinking about everything everything, every moment, every um, engagement that is centering the needs, the feelings or preferences and experiences and the comfort of white people. Um, and there's so many things that we, we don't really recognize until we really sit with it and think about it that we've just accepted as normal, quote unquote normal. Um, and so these are things that have become so normalized in our culture, in our society, in our interactions, that we don't even notice them anymore. But if yes. we sit down and unpack them, we start to realize, oh, well, these are things that 
don't center my needs. So I am not a white person. I don't I identify as uh, black, as African-American and my community um, does as such. And so there are so many things when I start to realize, when I started to understand um, and separate myself from the way things happen every day and understand that we are conditioned to show up in a certain way, we're conditioned to communicate in a certain way, we're conditioned to think a certain way of engaging is right and a certain way of engaging is wrong. And that's within this concept of whiteness because it wasn't um, my people, it wasn't my community who, who created this, uh, many of the structures and the systems that we work and live within um, and they weren't created for my well-being specifically. <laughs> And so having to unpack that has really been really helpful for me to understand that I get to create, that my community gets to create uh, the standards and the expectations that we live by in a way that's in alignment to what's best and what's healthy um, for our people, our young people, our children. Um, and so just understanding everyday whiteness is those things that we've learned to accept, that we've learned to operate within but we haven't questioned. And when I think of the concept of well-meaning whiteness, I think of that a little bit differently. Um, and I think of well-meaning white people as people who either, number one, just period, well-meaning people, people who mean well, but might not be as conscious of the ways that they're not all, their work, their words, their behaviors might be causing harm, unintentional harm. Uh, the other thing I think to be clear about is that I don't think of, of whiteness in and of itself as necessarily bad or negative. I just think of um, this understanding that when we don't recognize, when we don't call it out, when we don't, when we aren't clear that someone's well-being, someone's wellness, someone's comfort is being explicitly centered, mm. that's when it's hurtful. When it's not unrecognized, when the fact that we're centering whiteness in this space isn't recognized, and we're we're centering whiteness in a lot of spaces um, because often that's who has traditionally been in power. And so if I'm in power, if I'm empowered to create a system, I'm gonna create it in a way that's healthy for me, uh, especially if I don't have other people at the table who are also helping to create it in a way that's healthy for everyone. And so it's kind of just natural that we would create space in a way that centers our own perspectives. Mm. Uh, I think when I'm in very white spaces and people can acknowledge and people can talk about the fact very clearly that this space was created for someone and it wasn't me, then we can talk really clearly also about the fact that we're recreating a space that can be healthy and well and, and center well-being for all people. That's really productive. That feels really, really um, like the type of space I want to be in these days. Yes. Yes. Like the recognition that we're centering whiteness by default because we're not acknowledging that there's another way or that not even opening up the possibility of imagining something else. In the same ways that, you know, we've been centering maleness for a yes. long time in spaces, right? And we can call that out. And there's so much evidence of it. We've now really started to unpack that 
that like cars were made for white men who are a certain height. They weren't made for small white women. They weren't made for for um, anybody other than those men that they that they fashioned the cars for. And that it has an impact on other people. And if we don't notice it and don't call it out, then it just hurts. And we don't know why it hurts, right? And mm, so mm. Um, we don't know why other people are less safe in those cars. We just see it happening. And so in the same ways, when we look at the, our school, this is now this is the way that I internalize this. When we look at our schools and the systems that my children are in, um, if I don't understand them as systems that work like, were not created for my well-being, that I'm not able to think really intentionally about how to make sure that I am well in them. And so yes. when you look around in our school systems and you see black and brown kids really struggling, um, if you ask young people who haven't been talked to, who haven't understood, like had the benefit of having conversations about race, whether they're whatever color these young people are, they have internalized that something is wrong with black and brown people. Yes. <laughs> when in reality, we can't, we all have to understand that all people have the ability to achieve at the same level. I've seen it happen. I've seen when you center young people's perspectives and where they come from and their families and their experiences, mm. I've seen those young people thrive in amazing ways. And I have been, and I don't know if we've talked about this, Gurun and Sean, but when I was, um, I grew up in an all black school and then I got switched to an all white school um, that was a lot more, you know, a lot of really, really privileged young people, a really amazing education in that environment. But I struggled mm -hmm. and I got to a point through that experience. I think that's what taught me eventually that, oh, it's not me. Mm -hmm. But at some point you think something must be wrong with you. Um, that you're not thriving in this environment. Something has to be wrong with me when I look around and I see people thriving and I'm the only one or I'm mm. one of the only ones not thriving or not feeling happy in this environment and feeling like, uh, feeling highly uncomfortable often in this environment. And I think by the time I got to sixth grade, it was fifth grade. By the time I got to about fifth grade, I started seeing everyday whiteness. And I started seeing how it was hurt, hurt, hurtful to me, the ways that I was internalizing my experiences. And I started to push back in fifth grade. And I started to be very black. I started to just claim, claim it because I could see it and I could feel it. I was on a school bus one day with another brown girl who said to me, don't you just wish you were white? And I said, no, we can't say that. No, don't say that. Don't even think it. And she said, I really do. And she was hurting in that moment. And, um, and I remember going to my parents after that experience and saying, you know, you got to get me out of here because the only difference between me and her is she's been here longer. And if you and I can feel something happening to me in this space. Right. And um, and eventually after sixth grade, they let me go back to public school. But um, but for me, I felt something happening to my spirit just be mm. surrounded by something. And there's little things like you probably talk on your podcast about microaggressions and all these things, but that was when I started feeling them and mm. seeing them very heavily was the little comments that were like, well, you know, you're not like black, black, 
you're not like most black people because like you're not a thug and you're not and you don't you know gang bang and you don't right those are the types of comments and compliments quote unquote compliments. that I experience right <laughs> compliments quote. that I I experience also those things where you know little girls are just trying they're not trying to hurt you or harm you but they come and touch your hair and they go oh my god and when when I was in fifth and sixth grade they used to say things um, at that school, like you're such a freak. Oh my God, your hair does this or your hair does that. Oh my God, look at her hair. And 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 I don't think they, I don't think they necessarily meant a freak in a really negative way, but they didn't mean it in a pop. I think they just they would say like you're such a freak if you did something weird or unusual, right? But those are the mm-hmm. types of comments um, that I heard on an everyday basis. Now, fast forward to when I showed up when I went from what maybe 15 20 years later when i went from kind of all black work environments to mostly white spaces that have been kind of traditionally white people aren't saying the exact same types of things it's just like these types of comments get they evolve into kind of more mature comments that still feel very similar and yes. so those are the, the ways that people haven't haven't necessarily understood that their whiteness, the ways that they normalize whiteness, the ways that they perhaps um, are amazed or um, surprised by things that might be considered blackness, right? Mm -hmm. That might be uh, uh, unusual to them, that those things actually hurt and and over time um, have an impact, a significant impact on people. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And how how you spoke to how it's just so infused as regular as the regular as opposed to the distinguish that you made was whiteness isn't bad in of itself. It's that we're not acknowledging that it's centered all the time as a normalized state. Right, right. And and so when you think about like, I remember I was in um, the airport coming from somewhere and I ran into another black woman who said something, and this is when I was in corporate, uh, working in corporate spaces, and a black woman came up to me and said, oh man, and I've always worn my hair natural since I was an adult, since I was probably 18. Mm. And, um, and I remember her saying, man, I don't know how you get away with mm. having natural hair in corporate spaces. And, um, and just kind of thinking, I think, the friend was speaking out loud or thinking out loud and just saying, you know, I wish I could get away with that from a pers- because white people aren't used to seeing natural black hairstyles in the same ways um, that they're used to seeing their own hair natural. Right. And so they're also used to um, mm. our hair, meaning black and brown folks looking similar to theirs, but that's not my hair's natural state. And a lot of people who come from my community, is not their natural state. So, for example, when my daughter uh, ended up starting her work career, she came home one day and said that a, a white woman came and touched her and just, you know, really curious about her hair and said something like, that's an interesting hairstyle, right? Those are, that's like the, my high school experience, or my elementary school experience evolved and matured into grown-up language right like wow your hair is so interesting as opposed to like you're such a freak your hair does that right but we feel those things and those things happen on a regular basis and it's it's a small in some ways 
as talking about and thinking about hair. And sometimes it's big, as big as making comments that are really directed at the way I speak or the ways that I think, or just not being, you know, um, one thing that one thing that was fascinating to me was going from working in all black and brown spaces to working in primarily white spaces was some of the ways that logic worked for me in like community spaces. There were ways that we made decisions and ways that I could justify or validate a decision that I made. And I could say, you know, there were, I could just give a simple answer about what we know to be good for people that worked in community spaces that did not work in these spaces. In and spaces. so if I tried to use the same language, people would look at me like I'm we I'm strange or crazy. And I had to learn a new language walking into white spaces. I had to learn a new way of reasoning um, um, like that was more focused on uh, what studies show, right? Studies have shown, these are the studies that have shown blah, 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 as opposed to what we know from a from community experience is right mm. and wrong. Mm. Um, I had to validate things in different ways in order to feel heard or that my points were being received well. And so to me, you know, my experience of moving from that all black and brown school as a young person to an all primarily white school where I was very unusual looking <laughs> and acting in that space was very, is very similar from moving from black and brown workspaces into a space where I am one of the only and having to learn different ways of engaging because if I engage in ways that are um, that's have traditionally worked in my community experiences, I will not be successful in that space. Not because something's wrong with me, but really because that space has not experienced and or normalized anything other than what it's always known, right? Mm -hmm. And so I have to come in and, and learn to engage and communicate and behave in ways that that community, that space has always known and, and gotten comfortable with in order, and this is traditionally, I think the world is changing a little bit now, but in order to be successful, in order to make the impact in those spaces that I've wanted to make, I've had to learn a new language. I've had to learn new ways of engaging um, as opposed to those spaces being prepared to learn new ways of working with people. To, with you. <laughs> with me, right? So, so these are spaces that haven't had to change, right? And I think that's the big thing for me about this concept of whiteness is that we haven't, and I say we because I think we've all, engaged and and operated with in a system of whiteness that we don't even question yeah and so then our our spaces that we engage within have never had to learn how to adjust to welcome and embrace new perspectives new opinions new um cultures and ways even of whole philosophies ethos right different ways of organizing right. as you talked right. about different ways of coming to conclusions different right. ways of of seeing from the because what you see is going to determine the outcome right like the lens in which you're looking through as as 
and and you've shared so many things that are you've referred to you know it might seem small and yet they're they're it's almost like symptoms of that kind of pervasive whiteness that doesn't come under question right right and and for you to be young you know you're talking about your fifth grade experiences and now you're a parent thinking about what it's like to watch to to, to help your children navigate these systems what stands out to me is that your parents played a very strong role to make sure they were doing that on behalf of their children in the in the school system like these systems as you said are are built not with your people in mind so right. if you're going to participate them in order to have any power in them you have to know that going in and then learn how to best navigate them so that you can get what you need and keep it moving kind of thing right and that's you know um in all the spaces that i've been able to be successful in a lot of the work that i've done is all about advancing equity eliminating disparities whether it's in education and healthcare uh, and in employment. And so I've had to be able to notice that's, that's been for me, a really, um, mm. powerful and valuable skill set is kind of this ability to notice that there is a systemic reason that someone is not achieving a systemic reason that someone's not achieving the type of health outcomes we expect them to achieve. There are systemic reasons that groups of people are not achieving the type of employment outcomes that we expect them to, to be able to achieve or the type of educational outcomes. And then when I can see that, I have the ability to, to and again, this is like noticing whiteness, yes. noticing the things that we have all, and noticing whiteness, noticing where we center you know, um, people who speak English as their primary language at home, noticing all the ways that we center all the things that we're used to and all the yeah. things that we've normalized and then figuring out ways to center everyone, right? This is what, when you look yeah. at the best teachers, when I think of, you know, the times when um, my children have been inspired by a teacher it's when the teacher sees them and does isn't a teacher who, and I've heard this from teachers, when you go into um, open houses and you have the conversation with an educator about your child. And I've said, you know, my child does really well when the teacher shows up like this, when a teacher sees them in these ways, when a teacher, you know, notices that they don't look like they want to share, but calls on them anyway. Um, and when the teacher sees the best in them, and I've had teachers respond to that, and I know immediately this is not going to be a good year with this teacher. I've had teachers respond to that with, well, you know, I have 28 students and I can't X, Y, Z, whatever it is. When they say, you know, I've got 28 students and I'm not, and I just, there's no way that I can, whatever it is that they're saying, that's, I don't even hear the rest of it. I know that you're not trying to see them as human beings. You're not approaching this classroom as a community of people who are different and who have different needs and different ways that they can contribute to the classroom environment. Um, and the best experiences have been those teachers when I come for conferences. There'll be an educator who will say, you know what, 
your daughter got a little bit of attitude and I go, okay, what did she do? And I go, no, I love it. I love it. Mm-hmm. Like, I know what to do with that attitude, right? Like I know, I, I recognize that I see it. I know she's brilliant and I'm going to use that, you know, and, and they can, they see you as a human being, yeah. not as someone who's good or bad or right or wrong, but as someone who has unlimited potential and it's their job to bring it out of you. That's an educator that knows how to recognize the power of diversity in their classroom and leverage diversity to get the best results out of everybody. Um, but what we do, what we the, the educators who say, well, I have 28 students. And so basically what I hear is I'm gonna treat them all the same and they either succeed or they fail is I'm a teacher who's not going to recognize that um, that the system is structured in a way mm-hmm. where if I don't shift my the ways that I show up, I'm going to continue to produce the same types of like status quo outcomes that everybody else does. And it's not my job to do anything different. It mm-hmm. just is what it is. And that's where I think, you know, those are probably well-meaning people who are trying to protect themselves from having to um, strain themselves or go through stress. And, um, but they think of themselves as good people and they want to do good. They just don't know how. They just mm-hmm. don't know that really when I start to engage with people and, and, and um, value difference in my classroom, it's ultimately mm-hmm. going to help me. Yes. It's ultimately going to help the classroom. It's ultimately going to make even teaching easier and more satisfying because I'm going to get these amazing outcomes. It's the same, you know, as this like um, walking through the world and starting to notice um, the ways that I can produce the best outcomes I can. If I love teaching, then I want to love diversity. I want to love recognizing the ways that whatever it is, whiteness, centering whiteness, centering maleness, um, has the potential to stop me from getting the best outcomes I can possibly get mm-hmm. from every human that I inter that I'm with and and, right. and and group speak more to um all of the ways that these things show up I know you have so many stories that you could kind of go through but um what led you to start Sankofa leadership and um and you have such great language to speak to the real heart of what's going on, like even in all the division, like kind of like kind of getting to the essence of what's really happening. Um, and I know that's because you're you're so well practiced. You're you're you've been at this in all aspects of your becoming. Yeah, I really do believe that my childhood in some ways set me up for this work in a way. And I, you know, being a young person in that state of confusion in an, in a place where you know when i when i went from the all black school that didn't have a ton of resources to the all white school the educators in the black school told my parents that they believed that i needed more rigor that i needed something a different type of environment and they recommended that I test into this um, private school. And I did, and I went to visit. And I remember coming back home, not home, but coming back to my 
school with my friends at that time and say, hey, you guys, like, let me tell you about the school that I just visited. And these are the things that I remember saying to my friends. Number, and there's three things. Number one, y'all, they got carpet on every floor. They have carpet in their hallways, not only in the classrooms, they have carpeted hallways. I thought that was just unbelievable. And of course, and I think I was maybe in second grade when I went and visited the school. And so they have carpet on the floors. Number two, their school lunches are amazing. It doesn't, like we, we thought of our food as like prison food. Like we assumed, you know, this is the same thing folks are eating at the prison. And the, their school lunches, you would look forward to these school lunches, right? Um, so that was number two. And then number three was, and it's strange that this is how kids think, or at least at the time, but number three was, I can have art and gym on the same day. Like that was incredible to me that you could have, because in in the public school that I was in, at least from what I remember, you had like art or gym, right? And you have, because I only have so many specialists. Only one elective, right. Elective teachers. And for me, that was just incredible that you could just like all the rules that we had in the public school system, like don't apply to these kids at this special school, right? And so it was like, of course you can, I don't remember saying at all. I don't remember this being a part of my consciousness at the time. And y'all, they're all white. Like, I don't remember that part. <laughs> like, I'm going to be the only Black kid or one of two Black kids in that school. I don't remember feeling that or saying it. I remember feeling it by fourth grade. And by fourth grade, um, and, and this is a magical time in like my, I have four children. The part I we didn't say at the beginning of the class, I'm a mom of four okay. between the ages of 14 and 24. And, um, and I remember this magical age somehow around fourth grade where kids, my kids start noticing color in this big way, um, in some really painful ways and some really cool, exciting ways. Well, at my, the private school I was at was again, where kids start noticing color in a big way and start saying things. And, and so by fourth grade, um, I felt different, very, very different. And so, and a little bit confused about, um, is this bad different? Is this good different? Um, and, and why I felt left out sometimes, why I felt, you know, people often think the black kid is cool or weird or interesting, right? And, and same with as you grow up, you're cool or weird or interesting or scary. You're something because you're black to most people. And, um, and so just like experiencing that, that experience and going through all these emotions in like fourth, fifth, sixth grade of feeling excluded, feeling like um, othered to feeling um, like resentful about, once I realized it's not me, to feeling kind of angry, hurt, resentful, to feeling almost like, I'm going to be in your face about it then. I'm, I'm, you know, I, if, if you're telling me, well, you like me cause I'm not, I'm not, um, gangster black and all these things. Right. I remember by sixth grade, I was like, well, let me show you how black, black I am. Cause okay. I just go through this, this thing. And then suddenly realizing when I saw my friends, some of the friends that I had in that space, 
because there were a couple of years where there were a couple or a few more of us. Um, and some of the things that they would communicate helped me to understand um, what was happening to us in that space. Mm -hmm. Great education, great intentions, well-meaning white people, right? Yes. Um, but her, but but the ultimate impact in many ways was harmful. Um, and then trans being able to kind of look at that and see that as an adult, I went to an all black um, I went to an all black college for that reason, just because I wanted to be in all black everything in a space where it was like everyday blackness. I wanted to feel that um, that I could take for granted that everything was created and structured for the benefit and with the and centering the ex, um, experiences of people who come from the places I come from. Mm. And, um, and I remember being in that HBCU experience and looking around at the few white people that were there and the few other people of color and going, what brings them here? What would bring them to a space on purpose where they would intentionally become the other? Because they don't have to, there's so many spaces where you can just take whiteness for granted that you would come in here and feel othered in that on purpose. And I just wondered if we had the ability to make those folks feel differently and more comfortable than I felt in like these very white spaces. And then fast forward to coming to back to Minnesota. Um, Can I ask you a question there? I yes. didn't know HBCU that, that, uh, other than black could apply, they can at HBCU. Oh, absolutely, yeah. So yeah, anyone can apply. Oh, anybody can apply. Oh, but I don't think I was aware. And I don't know if your listeners know the reason why HBCUs exist, right? No, I'd like you to speak to some of the richness, like you're you're um, you're you're speaking to some very rich um, black community knowings, but maybe not to a, a lens of. Uh, yeah. Anyway, keep going. Yeah. Speak to the HBC. And I'm no historian. So, so you know, look this I love up it. for better information. But um, but my understanding about the reason that HBCUs exist, now this makes a ton of sense, right? Because many, many years ago, before I was born, but when my grandparents were around and my great-grandparents and my even my parents were around, there have been times when Black people were systematically left out of the education system, right? We were not allowed to go to certain, to attend certain schools. Um, the schools that we did attend had the worst, we got all the worst stuff. Even the, the public schools um, in black neighborhoods got all the worst, the, the old books that the white school systems uh, had gotten rid of. We got the hand-me-downs, right? We had all the, the, the kind of lowest level resources. Well, at some point, and we weren't allowed to go to, to white schools, right? And at some point that had all the great resources, at some point, um, black communities started creating their own spaces. Um, and, and in some places it was because, you know, we had to, we were required to, if we wanted to be educated. And so, um, and so these schools became spaces that started doing an amazing job at educating black people. And at some point it became illegal to leave black people out of um, school systems, right? And to leave black people, and it became illegal um, to knowingly and intentionally structure schools where the black schools were getting the worst and the white schools were getting the best. Um, but at some about from a policy perspective, from a policy perspective, right? So, so um, as policy changed, 
then some things started to change for Black people. But these HBCUs were the first schools that were educating Black people um, at a level where they could compete in for jobs with white people. Mm. Um, and it's and it was this resource for our community that did not exist. We were not allowed to attend other schools. And so because of necessity and because black people want to be educated, black people need to be educated, we had to create them for ourselves. And as we created them for ourselves, we did a heck of a job. Like our people did oh, yeah. an incredible job structuring these systems. Um, even within a white society, structuring these black institutions um, where people were able to excel. And so I think it's really important to recognize that a lot of these black spaces, because you hear white people, well-meaning white people say, well, we shouldn't have a black national anthem or we shouldn't have a black this, we shouldn't have a black this, we should all just be one America, right? <laughs> it's well-meaning, but when you, uh, when, it's when a well ignorant too. <laughs> Say it again. It's well ignorant too. It's well right, but but we get to be ignorant when we don't have the exposure to other realities, right? When we don't have the exposure to understand that Black people sat and listened to the national anthem and were clear for a very long time that that wasn't about their freedom, right? Mm -hmm. It was very very clear that that was that that some of these. Um, things that spoke to freedom for white people didn't mean freedom for all people. And so yes. black people created their own freedom songs because we weren't on the same page about what freedom means. And so if white people today are saying, and you, you've seen this recently, I'm sure you've seen where uh, there are some people that are disappointed that there was a black national anthem uh, saying before the, was it the, the Super Bowl? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and people feeling like there should be only one national anthem. Well, they have had the privilege of uh, not seeing how these like these institutions that have been created for white people left, systematically left and intentionally left black folks out and why black folks had to create their own institutions. Yes. Uh, and that the idea that black folks should let go of those today because today we're, we want you in ours, right? Um, and we want you to not have yours. We want you in ours. Th these are what's American and those are not. The very idea of that is like everyday whiteness at play. You know, it's violence. It's the same recurring violence that has gone on historically of as soon as like, I'm just, I think of the companies, the businesses, the towns, the, the family networks, like the brilliance that has really come from within your community all over this nation. And then how that wasn't enough. So then white people had to take it or bomb it or destroy it. Oh, God, and, then, yeah. and then this, this repeated thing of, of what you just said of, oh, why do you have your own thing? No. And without even recognizing that within the national anthem, if you did a verse past what most people have to memorize, it's actually quite violent to black people. Like the lane, the words and pe mm -hmm. white people, many have never even thought that that would be the case because they're not looking outside of the centered whiteness experience. We just know what we feel today. And today feels so post-racial for so many people who mm -hmm. don't have to see 
race in certain ways. And so mm, it's like the, the concept, I, I do a lot of coaching with folks and, and it really is well-meaning people who say, you know what, I just thought that I could see everybody as human and see everybody as the same and I just be a this. good person. And if I'm a good person to everyone and I just don't see color, then isn't that enough? And the, what we're failing to realize is um, that should be enough. It really should be. If we lived in an ideal society that was structured based on what's best for everybody, then we could just function within that society without worrying about treating people differently because it's already structured in a way that's, that's uh, designed to produce good outcomes for everybody. Mm. But if we don't recognize that that is not the case, that like, um, the history of the national anthem, right? All the things that we believe in as like patriotic really started off as very uh, racist against the whole, not just black people, racist against everybody who doesn't identify as white or that we don't identify as white. Right. If you don't understand that and the fact that our founding fathers created and started and the, a structure that we are still existing within and functioning within today, then we don't take on the responsibility to make to do our our job, our due diligence to make sure that we are restructuring things in a way that's producing equitable outcomes. Mm. Uh, and if we don't do that, like if and so the more I talk to people, um, and you did ask you asked me about how I got into this work, and I'll get there. But the more that I talk to people about their desire to be a good person, the more they understand that seeing whiteness, seeing color, um, and doing our job to make sure that people's outcomes aren't easy to, easy to predict based on their race or their place, or like that that is part of our job of being a good person, right? So if I wanna really be a good person and, and treat people well, I need to think about helping make sure that all people are getting, not that I treat people the same way, but that all people that I engage with have the equal opportunity to have great outcomes, right? And so that means I have to treat people a little bit differently um, based on who they are and based on um, who this country is and, and how our societies work in order to make sure that I am being the best person that I can be. So I got into this, this business because all, I think I talked about the fact that all my work before coming into kind of creating my own business was around equity, some type of equity. And that wasn't necessarily by design. It just happens to be the way that the types of work that is most exciting to me. I grew up in a household where we talked about things like you described the destruction of black neighborhoods. Well, my family uh, fled, my father's side, fled to Minnesota in 19, uh, around 1916, um, fleeing racial violence in the South, Paris, Texas. I think, it's, I think it is the year 1916. And if you look up Paris, Texas, that was one of the like um, scariest places. And there are lots of scary places for black people to be in the South, but Paris, Texas, 1916 was one of them. Um, and I think it had one of the highest numbers of lynchings of black people at that time. And so my grandfather's family fled here um, at, in 1916 and they created a new community along with all these other black families who 
moved here for various different reasons, a lot of them fleeing racial violence from the South. And they set up this community called the Rondo neighborhood. And Rondo was thriving, as were so many new Black neighborhoods around the country at that time. Um, and as like the as politicians and whoever makes the decisions started deciding we're going to build these freeways and this free this amazing freeway system was going to connect communities all over the country they started identifying these well like flourishing black communities as the places where we would drive the freeway directly through and the rondo neighborhood was this like oblong shaped like neighborhood that the freeway was identified to go immediately through. And so it just mm. destroyed black businesses. It's, and we had high black business ownership. We had high black home ownership at that time, very low in the same place now, right? So systemically, and, and we can't say whether or not someone was like, we're gonna drive this through all the black neighborhoods or whether it was just because um, it was the path of least resistance because you know if I'm a politician and I want votes from the people who have historically been able to vote um, then I'm going to avoid all the places where white people live right and so for us for our families there were also these racial covenants and all these things that were happening that we can ignore today and pretend aren't didn't happen but these racial covenants meant black people could not live in other places right because in the I think it's like the in order to buy the home, you had to agree that you will not sell it to black people. Um, and so mm. because of that, because of all these reasons, Rondo was the place where almost all the black folks in a high percentage of the black folks in Minnesota lived, And that was destroyed. And our um, homes were um, bought by the government for pennies on the dollar. And and our wealth was taken. Right. Mm. And so, again, out low home. So these types of stories were always just kind of. Uh, in me and under and I understood yes. them when I started I wanna, this company I want to oh, pause you because you've just brought us a lot so let's digest it and yeah um and also speak to the systematic nature of it Rondo neighborhood was the school where I went to high school St. Paul Central right um and I got the privilege of learning um from your family specifically because of the richness of what you're sharing of the Rondo community and I remember this and it was my first kind of learning to it, you know, as a well-meaning othered white person in the world, I had never been exposed to the rich history of, of um, black thriving communities, you know, and what that really means when communities historically had to educate themselves and create internal networks of, of patronage whether it's the post office, whether it's banking, whether it's doctors, like every level of society existed within your community, just like as white people, we see that in kind of the larger world. This was like worlds within worlds because it was boundaries that were forced and set on black people. I also mm -hmm. wanna see if you'll, Rondo neighborhood is one example as you talked about the, the network of uh, freeways. But like in the early, if you start to research this folks and really take some of the nuggets that Anika is bringing, you can look at some, this is what's been showing up for me is in the early 1900s, the political atmosphere that started to happen that then in the 
1909 to 1920, there were a ton of different riots where they called them riots, but they were really bombings of very wealthy and successful, thriving, rich Black communities that had figured out how to not need the white systems and had figured it out within themselves. And this is all early 1900s, but folks, we got to research this so we can see the pattern at play. Like what Anika is talking about is noticing. We have to notice whiteness, their patterns. And these things are old. They're not new. They're in the education, the political system from policy to all these levels. And the way the media plays it out to call it something as if it's a brand new thing when really it's very historic. Right. And what fascinates me, because I have done this like secondary research because a whole lot of folks before me did this great research on the Rano neighborhood and what brought families to Minnesota and other parts of the, the world. But um, when I was doing this research about what, why did our family leave Paris, Texas in 1916, I found these beautiful pictures my grandfather had saved and other folks had saved that showed what a beautiful community they had in Paris, Texas. My grandfather's father was in this amazing band and they traveled and um and so they left a thriving community of their own but when you look up paris texas at that time there's some really like when i say it's scary there was this period where black folks were starting as you said to build even in the south like in, in these these um their own economies and yes, then their the, own economies right and then you look up you you understand that what they call white mobs these like mobs started to form that would um that were really fighting against black people creating their own economies because what you see in in that time what i was reading about is that um there are groups of white people that started to see the impact of white of black people leaving their economy how much they needed those low wage black workers within mm -hmm. those. And so there came a point where like the Ku Klux Klan and different groups, kind of hate groups would start to harass black community members, lynch people, harm people uh, as a scare tactic to keep them working in and contributing to their economies in the ways they were. So at one point they wanted black folks gone, but at another point they started um, actually harassing and threatening families to try to scare them to make sure that they knew if they tried to leave, mm. that there's some that harm would come to them, right? Just really so, so if I stay, harm yes. can come to me and my family. Right. And if I try to leave, harm can come to me and my family. Mm. By the time what I read about is um, it wasn't until maybe the year after my family left that local politicians in Paris, Texas. So a lot of folks forget. People say, well, slavery was so long ago. Um, but the impacts of slavery have continued to persist for a very long time and hold people back. And so this was just, you know, when, when my grandfather's family was leaving Paris, Texas, where, um, where the, when they left, I think it was the year or a couple of years after they left, politicians started to feel the pressure to finally say, okay, we're going to publicly condemn lynchings, <laughs> lynching mm -hmm. black right this was not that long ago and not so we just have to ago. really understand the types of trauma and brutality that people came from and a lot of minnesotans so i started to do these presentations workshops here in minnesota and um and people would begin to cry 
And I remember being surprised at some of the emotions as people would process some of the historical facts that, that we're wrestling with. And I would realize that a lot of white people in Minnesota didn't realize that black people came to Minnesota fleeing racial violence the, the, in, in their minds, black people just showed up here, right? In many people's minds, black people showed up here, they immigrated, they migrated. They, you know, the idea that we migrated here feels better than the idea mm -hmm. that many of us were fleeing racial violence to get here and mm -hmm. then showed up here thinking that this was a, a place where we might not be impacted in the same ways by racism. And we weren't in the same ways by racism, but up north in, in these types of spaces, racism was shoved underground. And so these racial covenants, these black codes, these, um, all these ways that we started to really systemically mm. uh, exclude black and brown folks from being successful and, and yes. being healthy, et cetera, we yes. shove them underground. And when we shove them underground, it's actually smarter racism. Yes. It's actually much smarter because it fools us into, it can, because yes. we can't see it in the same ways. We don't walk around and see signs that say no blacks allowed. We just try to buy the house and are systemically excluded. We try to get the loan and are systemically excluded. We try um, and we find the places that we can live. And so we just think, that that's where we belong. We just think we landed there. We don't see how we've been excluded until we really start to dig and start to see um, the ways that it's been structured that way. That's mm -hmm. why it's so painful. That's why everyday whiteness, when we don't name it and call it out, mm. the reason it's so painful is because we start to internalize it and start to think and, and can, we can internalize it. Yes. We don't know. But we can start to believe what it's there to make us believe, which is that we don't deserve those houses. We don't deserve that education. We're There's not something wrong smart with me. somebody else. There's something wrong with me. And so when I got into this work, I ended up um, just realizing after kind of a career of being in different spaces and working on equity, I started to see the ways that a lot of well-meaning white people don't see race, don't notice, um, the way the, don't see all the tools in front of them to like be able to be their best self and even mm. the ways that a lot of black and brown folks um don't have the language and the words to describe what's happening and what they're experiencing in spaces right um and don't have the partnership whatever color or race or background you're in a lot of folks haven't had the partnership or the sense of safety to be able to speak out loud about these things. And so one of the things that I've realized that I've been able to do is create trust with people in a way where we can talk about things that they haven't been able to talk to anybody else about, no matter what color you are, because there's a lot of black and brown folks that haven't felt like they can talk to other people about these things. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a lot of white folks who haven't felt like they can say things without sounding stupid or sounding um, or even sounding racist. It's like ask questions. That, is that a racist question? I don't know, right? And being able to figure out how to build something. And so I decided in 2019, what am I saying? 2019, that I was going to create a business out of um, 
supporting leaders, supporting people who are in formal and informal leadership roles to think about how they can produce the best outcomes. And I don't even, and when we talk about equity, diversity, and inclusion, we're saying you have to, un, you have to be centering equity, diversity, and inclusion in how you lead in order to be the best leader and produce the best results. It's not just because we want to be nice to the brown people, right? But it's because we want to do the best work. If I am an educator or if I run an education system, I want to be able to produce the very best outcomes possible for all people. And actually learning how to see difference helps me produce the best outcomes for all people, including white people. Right. And so um, and so that's kind of one of the things. And whether I'm in a healthcare system, we work with a lot of people in healthcare. If I'm in healthcare, people's lives depend on me being able to see how everyday whiteness has is is um, impacting the fabric of our institutions and the structures that people move within and the decisions that we make and the assumptions that we make that impact people's lives. And so being able to like dissect that and understand that helps me be a better doctor, helps me be a better medical system. And so I have built this organization, Sankofa Leadership Network in a way that allows us to partner with executive leaders, the folks who are running the systems um, and help them to think about number one, their own practice, how they show up as leaders, how they show up as um, uh, people who are building and designing and enforcing systems. And then number two, how they structure uh, uh, a strategy around shifting the system. Looking at status quo, when I think of everyday whiteness, I think about like status quo. If I think about everyday maleness, like centering maleness, I think about what's status quo within our organizations and being able to like shift status quo, thinking about how to make change, like do change in a way that produces successful outcomes. And that's been fantastic for our team. Um, just kind of sitting with people, building spaces where we can trust that we can have really deep transformative conversations and then do really deep transformative work um, and engage folks along the way. So that's been really, really uh, a positive experience for me. It's just, it's so brilliant, like how you're talking about the uh, fostering spaces um, and, and the importance of learning how to see difference. Like it seems so simple. And, and yet when people aren't exposed to difference, the like what you said about the ignorance that comes, like it's okay to be ignorant, but then once we get that perspective, then there's the learning, then there's the amount of unlearning that has to take place because you become aware of something you once kind of didn't even notice. Yeah. And I think that's what like for, it's the the unlearning. Like we first have to see something in order to unlearn it. And all of this is about seeing how something is structured Mm. seeing the flaws in it and the flaw we only can see the flaws when we can see the out like pay attention to the outcomes so if something is structured this way it looks nice but it's producing these types of outcomes and so then there must be flaws it's not just that the people are flawed there must be actual flaws within the way that we're structured if we're producing consistently producing outcomes that are measure uh predictable by race 
then we must be in and of, in and of ourselves, how we've structured our system in some way flawed. And so it's about being smart enough and being and caring enough. Yes. Notice those things and to do the hard work, the uncomfortable work of number one, noticing, and this is again in, in my work and in the conversations that I get to have with people, the first thing that happens is when people start to notice is that it hurts. And so mm. the, the, it's very uncomfortable just to ask these questions and to notice, because part of what's painful is noticing the ways that I have been complicit, right? And that's really upsetting for folks as they like process that. That's why all the tears that I've seen in some of these conversations happen is because it stings and it shocks and, and it hurts and it cuts, especially when I'm committed to being a good person. When I realize how I haven't been my best, it really hurts. And so that's the first step I think for people is just noticing. And then the second step and Brene Brown is somebody I really pay attention to a lot and appreciate a lot because she says there's a difference between guilt um, and shame. And when she says like, when, when people react to that with shame, they're feeling shameful about who they are, right? That's when white people feel this sense of like, um, if racism is still here, you're saying, that I'm bad, you're saying that white people are bad or something like that, where if you process it differently and you say, well, this is what's happening. And I feel as this is the way Brene Brown describes guilt. I feel a sense of responsibility, right? I noticed that I haven't done something, which means to me, I'm reacting from a perspective that now I have to, I have a sense of responsibility. And when I have a sense of responsibility, I can do, I see that I can do something about it. And with shame, I just feel bad about who I am and I can't do anything about who I am, right? And I just collapse. I just collapse. There's nothing, there's no way for me to, to like resolve that. But if I feel a sense of duty and a responsibility, then there's a way for me to achieve my expectations of myself. There's a way for me out of, out of that. And so what happens for a lot of people is they feel this sudden sense of like urge to do something. And when people get there, there's something we can do with that. Like there's, there, there's a lot of some things for us all to do. <laughs> and so that's the exciting news. Like seeing it is one thing and then acting on it um, can be really exciting because we can see the difference that we can make immediately. This is why, and I don't know if, if you and I, when we talked before, we talked about this black doctor study, but this team of researchers discovered um, and I think this came out in 2020 and it was in like USA Today and all these spaces that they discovered, you know, we've been accepting, and I don't know if accepting is the right word, but for a long time that like uh, black babies die at three times the rate white babies die. And it doesn't matter if you're poor or you're a rich black person in the US, right? Uh, black babies are dying at three times the rate in which white babies are dying, right? In, in their initial hospital stay. And this research showed that there is one thing that dramatically changes, cuts in half the rate at which black babies die in certain hospitals. And that is if they are cared for by a black doctor. Powerful data, a lot of black folks have felt this and known this. It's not because black doctors are better doctors necessarily. It's because, and, and the researchers found this, black doctors are treating black patients in a way that understands the systemic inequities that black patients face. 
and they're adapting the ways that they are, and this isn't all black doctors, but, but a lot of black doctors are able to adapt the ways they engage with black patients in a way that helps those babies to actually live, which is what all doctors want to do. And so the researchers are saying, we're realizing that what needs to happen is not that all black people have to go to black doctors because that's not even possible <laughs> statistically right now. But what we're realizing is that all doctors have to study and understand the ways black doctors have been able to care for black patients. All doctors have to see race, have to know how to see and understand the ways that race impacts your experience in the medical system in order to be the best doctor and save the lives of the most black babies you can. So then if you think about that from like people with disabilities who come in to be cared for, if they're cared for by a doctor who has a similar experience, they're probably more likely to have positive outcomes. And, mm -hmm. and black folks, brown, brown folks, women, you know, people from different experiences, if you have them in your medical system, you're gonna do better for those folks who come from those communities. And if you learn from those folks, right? If I'm if I'm not a black doctor, but I'm asking black doctors, what are you seeing? How can I be caring for my black patients in a better way? Then I have the ability to do better for everybody. And so that's the like this powerful, powerful thing that even the data is starting to show us because we're asking the right questions now to be able to see that. Interesting. Going back to what you're looking for is kind of the data you're getting, right? The question you're asking is the determines the outcome in in research, right? And even in in medicine, in lots of places, right? The question we're asking right. determines the outcome that's um, exposed for us, right? right? And what brilliant. I don't know. I, I'm a little awed by the fact that these researchers have researched. Like that's a long study, you know, to even like you're talking about going back to what you spoke to when you went from black community, you know, black work and community and, and school spaces, um, education spaces to white spaces, like the shift in um, the what's what's being asked, you know, what, ha like the, the, the language that has to be learned, right? right? What, what's just known from your community, what you were talking about was something that had to kind of get proven over here. And so now you're speaking to this data has been showing what we've right. always known. <laughs> Which is that if you can, like the idea that not seeing color is hurtful only to me, like you not seeing color actually harms me because you're pretending to not see color for one. And number two, you're also pretending to not see the ways that color impacts my experience in this space. And that actually harms me. And if I'm a mother who's coming to you for, for care for my baby, harms my baby. And so just a lot of, you're absolutely right, Governor Sean, how we have ignored, as a society, we've ignored what community has always known. Mm. Community has always known that um, you, hear, you hear Black mothers say, I've had doctors who don't listen to me. I've had doctors who ignore my pain. And, and in the medical community, they're starting to come to grips with the fact that the data is now showing everything that they've said is true. The data is now showing that doctors see black women as in less pain. 
Then they see white women experiencing the same situations. They believe that black people can, can, um, can take more pain than white people. And that comes from some things that some like very, very race, racist uh, uh, methodology that where they were experimenting on black bodies when during slavery, right? And there were doctors yes. documented that black people can take a lot of pain. And, and to this that, point, that, that that got institutionalized, that there were white medical professionals that wrote a book that entire systems got built off of based on the efficacy of that racist book and those racial experiments on black women's bodies or black men bodies and like the, the the person they call the father of gynecology like people yes. are really trying to wrestle with all the harm that these people did on black bodies and the impacts of all the things that they taught on the medical profession today. Yes. And when you look at what's happening to black folks um, in medicine and you look at um, the types of uh, health disparities that we're experiencing, it makes a lot of sense that we're gonna have to unpack and undo a lot of the harm that we've caused and a lot of the things that we've accepted. And, um, and, and the, the things that have gone unsaid, the things that have right, just gone unsaid and assumed as normal. That's right. And so, and, and when you talk about this data, th I do think it's fascinating Me because too. jaws drop when I share this data about black babies um, in certain spaces, they don't in others, in other spaces, people kind of go, Oh, we needed a study for that. Mm. Right. But, yes. and the same data about, you know, the fact that, that doctors prescribe less pain medication for black people, I, I, I am 46 years old and I've been having these menopause conversations. I don't know if we can talk about that on your, on your, on your Bring show, it. but I've been having these conversations with women who are a little bit older than me and just learning a lot. And so I went to my doctor and I said something about men and I was like nervous. And I was saying, you know, and I've read that black women go through menopause and it's much worse. And the symptoms are much worse for black women and they last much longer. And my, black, my doctor happens to be a black woman. And she said, Anika, I just have to tell you, like you need to calm down for one, <laughs> because it's gonna be okay. And she's like, it's really hard to trust that data right now because what we know is black women experience menopause so much harsher than white women in large part because we under treat black women <laughs> for mm. everything. Right. Mm. So we know, so so she's like, I need you to know that we have treatments. If you have those types of experiences, we have treatments where we can help you and support you. It's just that a lot of black women have gone untreated and unsupported. Right. And so we're just starting to dig into these things mm. to understand just how deep it goes. Um, beyond just our everyday interactions. It's like this everyday um, assumptions that we make about other others yes, that have seeped into our medical profession, seeped into like all these other systems yes. that have far reaching, deep, uh, devastating consequences for communities and people. And as yes. we start to do our work to dig them up, Again, it's under under the mm. radar. It's underground. It's buried underground because no one is mm. saying. And I, my mother, when she was five years old, she was she um, lived in Alabama, and she fell off her bike. Her elbow was like pushed out of the socket. They didn't know it. She just had bad pain, 
and she went to the doctor and they sent her home mm. and she never got her elbow fixed. So her elbow grew the wrong way and she didn't have a lot of problems. She just had these cool elbow tricks she could do when she was younger. But fast forward to being um, a senior, she's had lots of experience, lots of nerve damage, lots of problems that impact other parts of her body mm. because she wasn't cared for. Her pain wasn't seen mm. as a five-year-old. Who can't see a five-year-old in that kind of pain and do their due diligence to make sure that they are yes. cared for fully and that they don't have a lifetime of pain that connects to this thing. But we were able, we built systems where Black people's pain is not as urgent or as alarming or doesn't trigger the same type of response. And because of that, lots of people have long-term effects, long-term impacts. And that's what we're asking people to start seeing, just to start seeing those ways that we um, operate from a perspective that others people and that could harm someone else and start questioning ourselves. If that doctor 60 some years ago um, that my mom saw had a questioned, right? Um, why that child was in this kind of pain and maybe I need to do more. Um, perhaps, because it seems, sounds like a really simple fix would yes. have resolved and, and not allowed us to be at a place where we've had the types of medical experiences that we've had 60 some years later um, had had the folks who decided that these freeways would go right through the middle of these these well um these these, these thriving, thriving communities and you're know, like i'm near bronzeville in chicago and it's the same story the freeway that yeah. went right through bronzeville this limited space that that black people were allowed that became this you know bourgeois place that you know music and thriving and all these things and you know rondo's another one and i know all these as i dig in and do a little research i start realizing wow oh. around the early 1900s Black people were realizing they needed to do for themselves because of all of the structural things in place that were preventing them from being normal humans thriving. And, and if you look at like even editorial newspapers, and I'm saying this for, you know, white people that are listening or anybody listening, like we all... I'm reminded like with the CRT and like kind of the suppression of books today, like this same pattern happened in the 1900s and then happened again like the reason we don't know this stuff is because it hasn't been in our school books right right we don't know black people were thriving in the 1900s because that's purposeful we don't know about all these communities or land theft of black people at by what you called white mobs or you know and how the historical violence and terror sent black people from south to north like it's it's the gravity of it is landing because we hear things like oh yeah the great migration north but we heard about it as if it like you said as if it was like this wonderful idea to migrate to the north and right. and not riddled with everyday terror of black people being murdered by white people everywhere and then the threat of policy and the same kind of political things happening and the same suppression of books and like it's just all over again I'm wondering if you can speak to what that must be like to witness it's like 
you know enough to know this is not new. It's a pattern. It's, it's a part of the system, but it's, it's, it just feels like it's so much gaslighting that there's even people saying it doesn't exist. It's like a, a form of gaslighting that says your experience isn't real. Well, and, and what's fascinating to me is that I used to think it was complete gaslighting. I, and, and it is, the impact of it is like people have been gaslit, right? But the intention of it um, is really different than what I used to think, right? I think I, I am realizing how much white people don't know, um, how much we all don't know about. We somebody, all don't know, right? right? We haven't, how would, like if my parents didn't know, how would they have taught me? Like so exactly. much, as you talked about, it's been suppressed. One of the great studies I think we need to do is look before integration, look at studies of anything before integration. Cause you get to really look at the richness that black people created for themselves with themselves, for themselves, among themselves. And it was white terror that stole that land, stole that wealth, stole that legacy, stole that history, and then suppressed it. And then what, 40 more years later came the freeways. And that's why I say it's like in this like higher level of intelligence of racism. Like like (laughs) there was one point where it was just like, you're black, you're bad, stay out of my restaurant. Or you can sit in this part, or you could sit in the back of the bus, but you can't sit in the front. And that wasn't that long ago, right? That really wasn't long ago. But then at some point, our consciousness as a, as a country started to shift and we started to realize actually that makes us bad people. If we, if we say, because you're black or you're brown, you're bad and we exclude people. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna write laws that fix it. And then as we write the laws, as we write policy, then it just, it doesn't go away. We have mm. to understand that it doesn't go away. It just gets shoved on the ground. It means if you are, and that's, this is what all our policy means right now is that if you are racist and you have inherently racist beliefs and you believe that black people are bad, you cannot say it. You have to look like you think all people are good. You have to talk like you think all people are good, but we're not gonna hold you accountable to whether or not you have a good impact on black people, right? So we're not necessarily gonna hold you accountable anymore for hiring black people or promoting black and brown folks or um, or for not making sure, making sure we're paying attention to who you're firing and if you're firing and disciplining all the black and brown folks, which is what is happening in a lot of places. We're not gonna hold you accountable criminal justice system for whether or not you are, um, arresting black and brown people for the same crimes uh, that you're letting white folks go, which is what we're finding when they're, as they're doing the studies and the research, they're seeing that, wow, for black, so the juvenile justice alternatives initiative that has had that Annie E. Casey funded around the country um, starting maybe 20 years ago or so, they started to see that we have these like gaps in our criminal justice system. So when we say, oh, black people are filling up the, the prisons, there's a reason, not just because like we know that the prison system, we understand that the prison system was built um, and designed to incarcerate black folks and after slavery was abolished and we couldn't force them to work in that way. We know Mm -hmm. the history of that, but even beyond that today, we we understand that the data shows us very clearly, again, this is my new language that I learned now shows us and you can I can point you to the data from Annie Casey Foundation but they partnered with 
these criminal justice systems around the country and they started to see what we've always known, which is for the same crime, um, black kids are sentenced to secure detention and oftentimes white kids are sentenced to, well, and not sentenced, white kids, will, it'll, the determination will be made by a cop or by whoever makes that decision that like this kid just needs some tough love and call his mom, right? That's happening all over and it's resulting in black and brown kids having a higher level, I think they call it disproportionate contact within the criminal justice system at every point. So our neighborhoods are being more heavily patrolled. Our children are more likely to have contact period, period with police. And when they have contact with police, they're more likely to go to jail than white kids for the same things, right? And the and the, there's this also data that's showing that the more your facial features and your physical characteristics are associated with black blackness, the harsher your penalties are. Mm. And so, if I'm darker skinned, if I have a broader nose, if I have certain types of features that are more heavily associated with blackness, even if I'm light skinned, very light skinned, with these types of features, I'm more likely to be punished at a higher level. And that's not just within the criminal justice system, that's within school systems, that's within all these spaces. And so the more, and, and it has to translate then to, and we see it in our workplaces where um, I'm more likely to, if I'm a hiring manager, I'm more likely to associate people who I identify, and this is highly unconscious, this is not necessarily that people are thinking like black bad, white good. Right. You're right. not conscious aware. It's a part of the brain. That's a complete unconscious part of our, of like our mechanism that makes us feel our conditioning, our safety. Yeah, go ahead. Mm-hmm. And so that, that is why, again, when we say we're not going to hold you accountable to hiring black and brown folks, we're just going to hold you accountable to not blatantly being blatantly racist. Right. And when we don't pay attention to that data, then we can have what seems to be race neutral, like people like to call race neutral laws and policies. But really, when you uncover like the what's really happening, it's very racist, the, mm. the impact that we're having, which is why if, I don't know if your audience uh, pays attention to Ibram X. Kendi. But one of the things that I really appreciate about what he I've seen him speak in spaces, um, what he shared is this concept that you cannot be non-racist like it's not a thing to be I'm not racist when you hear people say I'm not racist Mm -hmm. usually that means I'm not doing anything about systemic racism I'm just ignoring race and trying to be a good person Mm -hmm. and what he's saying is that if that's the case you're still likely having racist outcomes if you're a hiring manager you're still likely not hiring a lot of folks that are that don't look like you if you're in the medical profession and you're just not racist, then you're not doing anything to address the systemic health inequities that black babies are experiencing. And so you're not caring, doing the best care for black patients that you could be doing, right? Mm-hmm. That's what we're hearing. So you, so from Ibram X. Kinney's perspective, you're either racist, doesn't mean you're a racist, right. but if, you're, if you judge whether your, your actions are having a racist impact, which just means, at least the way that I interpret the way he speaks, it just means that your actions and your behaviors are having an impact on people that we can um, 
like pretty accurately uh, predict by race. So I can predict that white people, that you're going to hire more white people consistently across all your jobs than black and brown folks. I can predict that the white people who work for you are having better outcomes, are getting better performance reviews um, Mm -hmm. and being uh, 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 supported in ways that produce better outcomes than the black and brown folks that you're, that's what really matters. Not so much what's in your heart. If, mm-hmm. if you think about this, like either you're racist or not, or anti-racist, right? What's in your heart is one thing, but what you're producing is something else. The mm-hmm. outcomes of every interaction you're in is something else. And mm-hmm. once you start to see it that way, then you realize the, op- the, ex- the um, a responsibility Yes. For being anti-racist to producing anti-racist outcomes, which is really, for me, a really powerful way to see that um, because people get hung up on whether someone's racist, a racist, yes. right? Yes. Or not a racist. And what I really care about is whether your actions and your words are having an impact that's predictable by race or not, right? So and are you paying attention, right? Are you paying attention are, to that? Like, I love the language that you're bringing um, around the outcomes because it just reminds me of kind of like a computer information input in is the information output, right? And um, so if, if, if someone isn't looking at the historical nature of what it means to have grown up centering whiteness and all of the ways and starting to feel like oftentimes we want to jump from noticing to action, but we have to feel, and that feeling is a part of this, this reckoning that, yeah. that, that Black people have been reckoning, brown people have been reckoning, but white people haven't because we haven't had to navigate the world noticing race since it went underground, so to speak. Yep. Yep. And that's such a weird thing to say, but it's like this unconscious, as you said, conditioning that lets white people just kind of fiend ignorance. And what you're saying is no, no, no. Like you have to start noticing because we can't even get to the conversation until you're starting to feel some of this and move into a place of I'm noticing stuff everywhere, but what the heck do I do about it? Because I can't like crawl out of my white skin. And you're like, yeah, welcome to our world. We can't crawl out of our black skin. Right. And noticing is like, I have huge conversations, long conversations with people just about noticing Mm. because there's so many people who um, are coming into a consciousness around the fact that there's so much that they, they haven't been conditioned to notice. Yes. And, and they are trying to figure out how to recondition themselves because if I don't notice it, then I'm allowing a lot of harm to continue. And if I'm in a leadership position, so I just really love and value being in space with people as they are going through that, it's like this really humbling period of time in a person's life hmm. where, um, and I and I don't believe in just this like wallowing in guilt or shame or any of that because it's just not productive. However, there's some feelings that you have to feel yes. and you have to move through and process what does it mean for me in order to be, to get to a point where you decide what your role is and so I appreciate being in that space with people. And that's why I appreciate, you know, pe- people allowing me to be present for some of the emotions that they move through 
um, mm. because you can move through emotion and then wall it off. Like the, the way you come out of that space is really important. And so I um, find myself sitting with people and processing damage that they're noticing that they've done or harm that they're noticing they haven't disrupted. Mm. And then trying to arm them, equip them quickly so that they feel powerful instead of powerless because they have so much good that they can do. And so, and, and this is my experience, Nishan, I don't know about yours, but my experience is sometimes I learn so much sometimes because we all cause harm in, in unintentional ways through our lives. And so when I realize and I feel burned and stung by something I did that was wrong and I know I have a good heart and I know I mean so much better than what I've done. When I feel that sting, it helps me to never let that happen again, right? It helps me when I, when I feel empowered to do something about it, it helps me get to a point where I know for a fact that that mistake will never happen again. That mm. misstep, that, that thing that I overlooked that I, I felt so much uh, hurt around or that I caused hurt around yes. will never ever happen again. And that's a powerful, powerful space. Um, mm. And then, you know, of course, for me, I feel like I'm like the tool fairy. Like I get to like <laughs> say like, and look at that. And you've got this tool and you've got this tool and you've got this tool and you have this moment and this opportunity and this opportunity. And really the truth is that there are probably a million different opportunities to have an impact um, and to see whiteness and dis disrupt it. Um, and, or to see the whiteness that harms because whiteness isn't all harmful but to see the whiteness that harms people or has the potential to harm and name it naming it is one thing that you can do that's one tool it's just naming and that's one of the first tools that people start to use it's like whoa I'm noticing this um, and it's not necessarily bad but I just want to call it out that it's here and that it feels very present and that's number one. And then number two is starting to notice like the patterns of whiteness and to restructure things that in ways that center other people's perspective. One of the things if I'm a hiring manager is bringing like, I, I love um, the example. I worked for the science museum once years ago and I had I, the opportunity to bring in this really diverse team of people. And when you bring in this diverse team of people who think different, come from different spaces, there's a, there's a tension that never existed in that space before, but it's kind of like, and it's powerful and it could go wrong if you don't know how to manage that type of tension. But as you learn, cause I didn't know how until I learned. Right? Mm, yes. And as I learned how to manage it, it became so beautiful in that we learned how to like this very different group of people from different perspectives, we started to learn how to work together in a way that centered trust and respect. Like we were always going, because we knew the people mm. around the table were the right people. We believed in each other. And even when we were irritated and disappointed and hurt by each other sometimes, we had mm. to lean on that belief in each other and that respect that we had for each other. And so even when we hurt each other's feelings, we could come out of a space where we disagreed in big ways, having made decisions that were so much wiser than the decisions that we would have made. Were, did we not just kind of get dirty with one another, roll up our sleeves and just like duke it out, um, metaphorically mm. speaking. Yeah. 
But had we not just kind of gotten in there and said the tough things to each other, felt the hurt, felt the anger with each other and the frustration, because again, these are people from different religious backgrounds um, or and people who are atheists and people who, um, you know, Christian, uh, uh, Baptist, uh, Lutheran, um, Muslim, Buddhist, like we have the, the, one of the most diverse teams I've ever seen. And we call ourselves to this day, the dream team, that team (laughs) together, because we got to a point where it felt like you got, and we, and people would say this to us, everything you touch turns to gold. And we knew that the secret was that everything we touch, we all touch. Like it's not Anika touching it. It's Mm. Anika and the dream team is touching it. And we all have to navigate and negotiate something. And as we negotiate it and we center each other's diverse perspectives, we actually can do that in a way that doesn't like shove out whiteness, right? That's not the goal. Like there are, I want to center because whiteness isn't all that white people in our team um, bring to the table. There's so many parts of their- There's so uh, much richness to being white, but we don't even know how to honor our own richness because we're just kind of in this category of invisibility of whiteness. Like we don't know our culture. Now we're not, and, and there's so much. And so as we talk about culture, there's also oftentimes white folks who go, wow, I didn't even think about that. But I guess this is how my- I guess I do have a culture, right? And I guess I do have like all these. And so as we talk about it, we all, the goal is not to like shove the white people out of the center. The goal is to make sure that we're all centered. The goal is to make sure that we all, all these diverse perspectives are centered. And it's not like whiteness that's sitting there and holding so much of the space that no, nothing else can hold space. Mm. Nothing else can live in there. And so as we did that, what we did not do was like, okay, now we're only centering blackness or now we're only centering brown. We were able to do this in a way where we just like had to negotiate all these like um, ways of centering people. And because we did that, we could build trust and respect with different communities that we hadn't built the types of trust from before. Um, And we were able to have credibility within community in ways that we we um, hadn't had previously. We were able to have credibility with funders in ways that we wouldn't have been able to had the community not wrapped their arms around, around us in the ways that they did. And mm. so thus we ended up calling ourselves a dream team and also just felt good. Yes. It also just felt, and I there's a, a, a white individual that was on our team Uh, And I think I can share that one day this person said to me, hey, Anika, since you came, this is maybe two years into our experience together. Since you came, these have been the like most challenging two years of my career. And I just remember going, ah, and my heart dropped a little bit. And I just said, you know, I don't remember what my response was, but I felt a little bit um, of that person's like, I felt heavy. And the person said, let me be clear, like I've learned more than I've ever learned and I've grown more than I've ever grown. It just, I've never been challenged. And the person said to me, or I've never been challenged in this way. And the person said to me, I went from being part of the majority on this leadership team 
to, to a minority <laughs> on this leadership team. And I went from thinking that I was like brilliant and that I, all these things that I did were just the right way to do them to feeling constantly challenged mm. about my ways and my practices and, um, and questioning myself in ways that I had never questioned myself. And I've learned so much from my peers, from this group of peers that I know I wouldn't have learned if I stayed this like part of a majority. Um, and so for me, it was powerful in just hearing someone say that and hearing someone acknowledge yes. that going from living in a space where whiteness, this like whiteness was the norm to a space where whiteness was challenged by and supported by and complimented by all these other um, identities was hard mm. and challenging and nurturing and like supported this person's development um, and ultimately like energizing and powerful but this person went through it right on the yes. way so I think like the 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 fascinating thing for me yes I, I I really like have grappled with this over time because when I went to a white institution for the first time and I started creating spaces where people from different backgrounds would come in and I and and just and I always do this like because I remember people would come in and grab the table they would come because we had a um, a kitchen space in our space in this big institution and we had a, a like place where you can come and prepare your lunch and so people would come into our space and sit and eat and have lunch with us sometimes and then they'd hold the table and they'd go I don't want to leave I just I don't want to go I don't want to leave this space that y'all have created mm. um, because this is where I feel like I belong Yes. And, um, and I, and we, that warmed my heart when I was in working in all black spaces and had this community space, that's what people would do when they came into our space, they would go, Oh my God, this feels like home. But the idea that I could, that we could create a space like that in a white institution, mm. uh, was really powerful. And then what started to happen. And so in my mind, I started to understand we've created a space where black and brown people can feel comfortable and can breathe different you can see like I have to take a few deep breaths before I go back out in that space again right but they're breathing differently in that space and what's powerful for me Guru Nishan is like something clicked one day when there were white women in the space and they did the same thing and they go okay I don't want to leave here and they and I and I remember thinking you too you too this feels good to you but that's like and right this is like this is what you want right and so the truth is that there's something about and I heard a white woman say it in almost these words there's something about the way whiteness happens in our spaces and communities that sucks the air out not just for black and brown folks but for me too right this white woman was like for me too the ways that we create space in here is better for me, feels healthier for me than the ways we create space out there. And so in my mind anyway, <laughs> I have concluded that this is the, like this way of engaging is the right way for, every, it's really healthy for all of us, including white 
cis white men, um, men Man, males. Exactly. Including cis white males, including all of us, because you're speaking to the humanity of what it means to just be safe to be. Yeah. And how much of the cultural institutions that have been created have created false personas of the way you have to be, the way you have to look, what's allowed to be said. You talked about it earlier. What's right, what's wrong, what's good, what's bad. It's so this or that, as opposed to the multitude of perspectives that enrich a space and allow something else to emerge. That's right. Yep. That's the idea. And that, I think that's what it is. Um, is like the idea of difference period. If we get good, and this is like why sometimes I, I think it's important to be able to talk about this in in terms of race, because race is this difference that takes up so much space in our minds, in our heads, in our consciousness, and in our hearts. But it's about difference period. (laughs) It's about Mm -hmm. being able to see someone who shows up differently in the world and imagine instead of like that's scary or that's weird or that's bad to imagine that learning and understanding and being in community with people who show up in this different way could make me smarter and make Mm -hmm. me better like there's something about being around more people who are different than me that actually makes me my best version of myself as opposed to the ways we typically are used to engaging with difference which is kind of like this like "Mm, I don't know and um and the more that we and so in our institutions and our organizations being able to hire people who bring difference to the table Mm -hmm. with a from a perspective of understanding that they're going to make us smarter in our organizations Mm. and being ready for it. Like, it's also going to be a challenge. It might, like my colleague uh, shared with me, it might be a challenging period for me because I'm not yet used to being made smarter in these ways, right? I'm not challenged, right? Or questioned. It's such an interesting thing when you brought that up because it really goes back to the the depth of assumption, assumptiveness that those of us inhabiting white bodies hold for everyday things, like just the way things are. And you start to realize, oh, whole communities, whole bodies of people don't live with that as the ethos of the way things are, never have. But you've never been exposed to the fact that that's not their reality. You you think like, oh yeah, all humans are like this. And it's like, oh no, no, that's just all white people. And I think not even all white people, right? Like that's the, cause white people are so diverse. But when we think of whiteness, White people, and, and someone said, and, and I don't remember who this was, um, but that like the biggest trick that's ever been played on white people was like tricking white people into like identifying, like letting go of whatever I did. Cultural history, right? a real and cultural heritage. Right. So that let's just pause there and talk about that. You know, this is quite historical. You have to look it up, folks. Um, again, it, it's like, I don't even know what year, but um, I can put it in the show notes. 
th that the color code started to show up and that 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 was actually strategic as a policy as a way to create hierarchy among the classes. So how can we get the low class white people and higher class white people all calling themselves the same thing? And then these types of things in new, more strategic versions kind of played out over the next several hundred years. But I say, I guess, Anika, what I want you to speak to, because it's really easy for white people to kind of jump to all people. And so I love where you're going in terms of it is really about cultural difference. And I 100% agree with you because I grew up as a cultural other and I can't say I've identified as white very long. But that in and of itself becomes the problem for a lot of us white people is we're well-meaning because historically we haven't fit into these quote systems either. My parents rebelled against them and maybe other people's white parents rebelled against these quote structures and systems. But by nature, because we inhabit a white body, we're still benefiting in a way that I couldn't fully get the gravity of. And I still consider myself more aware than many. Yeah. And the only way I think you can really understand how you're benefiting is to be in close relationship with people who don't benefit, right? And to then, because you have to be able to like understand their everyday experiences and compare them to yours. And so I have white friends who, um, who have children who have very different experiences in the same schools than my children have in the schools. I have, um, so for one, of, one, one clear example is um, as a black person, Black anger is received differently than white anger, right? And so a lot of Black folks know if you get angry and you speak while you're angry, your anger will be interpreted differently than someone else's anger. Mm. So a lot of people teach their Black boys about how to engage with police because you don't get to be indignant, right? You don't get to have the same type of interactions with the police that, and this isn't because police are bad, right? This is because we know that in the same ways that black people are perceived differently in the medical community, by the medical profession, these are people who intend to do all good, right? These are people who intend to do, do good things. Yeah. Um, we no. know that their experiences are going to be different within the healthcare system, right? Black babies die at a rate of three times what white babies' uh, mortality rate is in America in the healthcare system. And they're cared for by doctors who want nothing more than to care for babies and to send babies home to their parents healthy. But yet they're having these outcomes. It's very similar in the criminal justice system. It's very similar in all these other systems. And until white people start to see the data about what's happening in black and brown communities. See the data, right? After data, I'm sorry. Sometimes, I'm you know, folks need the data. But until they, until you see it, until you talk to black families and you feel it, you feel what's happened. Feel and like, you have to see it. You have to like see the data. You have to feel it at a heart level. And then you can say, that doesn't happen to us. 
That is not our experience. And those are the moments when I see people like really feeling and understanding how white they are in that way, how white they get to be, because my children will never be interpreted in the same ways that your children might be interpreted when they do something good or when they do something bad in general. Mm. And so um, until the, until white people see that, white people, especially white folks who don't identify as white, but they benefit from whiteness. And what's yes. fascinating is that I have mixed friends who have one white parent, one black parent, or one white parent and one Indian parent who talk about the ways they benefit from whiteness, right? Um, the ways that they, like there's some friends who will say, we send my mom who might be my white mom to go deal with these types of situations. Wow. If we get pulled over, my mom is doing the talking. Like we're shutting up and mom is doing the talk. Like they understand some of these things in a way, a lot of folks yeah. understand these things in a way that are even hard for me to understand because I don't get to see up close <laughs> exactly how white people experience the world. But a lot yeah. of mixed families like experience that very differently. The other thing that I hear from some of my friends who um, identify as mixed is that uh, mixed race is that um, especially the ones who are perceived to be white by white yes. people, um, mm. they have a powerful understanding of their the ways that they benefit from white privilege. Like they have a very powerful understanding of that. Yeah. Um, especially those who might be perceived as white by white people, but they have a sibling who's perceived very differently, right? Yes. Yes. And they can see in their same interactions, the same types of things, the ways that they benefit. And those folks are really powerful to hear from some of their perspectives. Their stories. Yeah. The voices. Um, I had a girlfriend and, and that was exactly the case. She had a white mom and a black father, but she is white passing. And she, she said, white people never know that she's black, but black people generally always know. And, yeah. and I found that so fascinating. Once again, like white people's awareness level of things and black people's awareness level around the same thing. And um, she also, and her sister was darker complected and they both had the same parents. And um, even, you know, I wanna kind of say that, that that perception, how we perceive ourselves and then how we're able to move and maneuver space without something being of, um, you know, without disruption, that's the white passing, right? So to get language to this, you spoke to how so many well-meaning white people want to be so much of our training and that these systems train us to be good people. And mm -hmm. so when these race, these blatantly racist systems went underground, the, the amount of marketing and indoctrination that must have come to so many white families is like, oh, you just don't talk about those things publicly. Now what's talked about privately is another thing, but so many generations might've just not talked about it. And so if today we're flustered and we get full of shame and guilt and all the things, a part of the process is just noticing and feeling it, that it's okay to, like, it's it's not just okay, it's necessary to, to, to recognize there's no way I cannot be racist growing up in these systems. So a part of my work at acknowledging that is to notice right. and then to feel 
what I haven't been allowed to speak to or name because that's what I learned in my family or that's what I learned in my community. You can't talk about this person's different hair or the fact that this person has different color skin. You can't speak to these things. So I almost feel like a lot of white people are just little children and don't even know how to bring up the obvious because we don't. We don't know how to speak to what's in plain sight, which is race. When it comes to race, yeah, that's that's the sad thing that, um, okay, so I've been in all these systems. I've worked in all these systems. I've partnered with all these systems. Mm. And in every system, and this is the other like falsehood I think we've got to get out of our brains and out of our out of our bodies and out of our systems is that um, something's got to either be good or bad. Mm. A person, a human being has to be good or bad or a person has to be a racist or not a racist. Like that's not, that's that's just, that type of thinking is false. And so in a lot of these systems, whenever I, because I am this like thought of as this like equity person or um, change person in every space I go into, a lot of times I'll enter a new space and everybody wants to tell me, especially when I was working in like an employee, um, in systems, mm. I come into these spaces and then and do all these coffees and um, uh, meet and greets with people, and they want to tell me who the good people are and the bad people and who the racist people are, you know. <laughs> and it's just like okay, um, and I sit and I know that I don't have the, always the exact same perspectives on that that other people do, and I rarely see things as like very black and white. No mm-hmm. pun intended. But um, but I end up, you know, hearing so much about who the good person and the bad person is. Mm. And so a lot of the times the bad people, the people who people have so much resentment and so much hostility towards are well-meaning white people who make mistakes and who mm. uh, haven't learned yet to center equity, diversity, and inclusion. And part of that is it's almost always they haven't had the benefit of having grown up around, having um, and either grown up as a kid or grown up, you know, in your professional career around diverse folks. Mm -hmm. And so you haven't figured out, um, you haven't developed tools on how to work with people, attract people, recruit people, retain people. Um, manage and support people who are that type of different from you, right? Mm -hmm. And so when you haven't, then you just continue operating in the same ways. But what ends up happening in these systems is when we brand you the bad person, um, when we brand you the racist person, especially if you're not, right? Like some people just maybe are, but especially if you're not, if that's not who you are in your your heart, if your intentions are different than that, what ends up happening is that we push you into a corner because you don't have you don't have any sense of safety to ask questions. And when we can't ask questions, and when we can't try new things, and we can't make mistakes, we can't learn and we can't grow. And so one of the big things that I'm trying to get people to do is like to understand that we're all, especially, and I say, there are people who think that equity doesn't matter and that equity is stupid and that equity is somehow unfair when we're thinking about like 
focusing on producing equitable outcomes for all people. There are people that believe that that is bad or dumb or anti-American in some way, right? And they've convinced themselves that. And until they cross the line where they go, I want to step into this conversation and lean in a little bit and understand if I'm missing something. Until they cross that line, they're just over there. And so I don't tend to work with those folks, right? Mm -hmm. If they're just over there, I'm not trying to convince you that producing equitable outcomes matters. Mm. Not trying to convince you that seeing race matters. When you step over to this side and you go, I want to be in this conversation. I want to listen more. I want to learn more because I care about people and I care about making sure if there's someone who's not getting the same types of opportunities to live a full life, a full healthy life, to be successful, to um, achieve their greatest. I care about that. Like, and when they start to hear quite so if you step over on this side, I got a whole bunch of energy for you. <laughs> because the minute you step over on this side and I can give you some data again, it starts with data for a lot of folks. Like if I told you that if you're born in this zip code, no matter what race you are, some folks need to have a conversation first. It's not about race because race is triggering for some folks. Yeah. But no matter what race you are, if I tell you that I can predict your lifespan based on what area code you live in, and no matter how rich or poor you are, right? Wow. If I can tell you that I can predict your lifespan based on if you live 10 blocks that way or 12 blocks that way, is that okay? From the time you're born, you're a little baby, right? If you're, you're, your likelihood of surviving to be age 70 is like close to zero because you live in this area code, is that okay? And most people will say, absolutely not. That's not okay. But they'll try to say, but I think it's because people make choices. Like they're gonna be more likely to smoke or they're gonna be more likely to, to be engaged in violence because they live in that area. Then they start to try to move it to um, choices that people make, right? Mm -hmm. That's when people go back to that other side. side. <laughs> I think data makes a big difference, especially for folks who are like on that line right now. And so the more I can help you see that a lot of this, before you make choices, like even the choices that are available to you mm. are impacted by the area code, the zip code you live in, by the space you live in, by all these structural inequities, things that are unequal about how we've structured our society, mm. then almost everybody comes back to this side and goes, okay, let me listen a little more because I want like, that's not okay with me because almost everybody is conditioned to care about fairness. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Be a good and person so, and be fair. Be a good and, person. And, and, and I want to be seen as a good person. So like, even if I do some bad thing, I'm going to keep those to myself and this kind of like this harbored shame. Yeah. And, and if I, and if you, I can hook people who think equity is a bad word because really equity, the way that I see equity is really about caring about all people yes. and caring about all people's outcomes, not just caring about looking like we're doing good for all people, but caring about making sure we're doing good for all people. Which yes. means then if there's a something little that I can do to make sure half of black babies, half of those like th that um 
infant mortality rate for black babies is cut in half, I'm doing it. What is it that I can do? I can learn more about how black doctors care for black babies and I can be a better doctor for black babies. I'm doing that, right? What, regardless of what I think about this concept of equity or diversity and inclusion, that's what it is. It's paying attention to the ways that our society is shaped around whiteness. It's, you know, um, one of the things that is powerful for me is when you talk to people in the medical profession and they can describe very clearly, at least the folks that have been hit to like, let me tune into this equity conversation. Yeah. A lot of these folks in the medical profession will start to talk about very specific things that they've seen where like, oh, I'm a doctor and we've been trained to notice these issues on white patients. And I'm seeing black patients harmed because we haven't been trained to see and to notice these issues on their skin. Or there's these types of medical devices that are so much more effective on white patients. And we're just learning how poorly they are because they're not structured to get the best outcomes for black patients. And so what do we do for our black patients? Like just asking those questions, we have to be able to care for our black patients, yes. the ways that we care for our white patients and re recognizing that it's unacceptable to just say, well, that's just the way the machine is, <laughs> you know? It's a machine. Because if we recognize that there were patients that we tested these things out on before we released them, there are, and we released them knowing, we released these um, devices knowing that they were structured for someone the same way we build cars, have built cars historically in a way that's structured for someone. That means that we are responsible when someone who we sell it to and is less safe. Yes. Right? And so these doctors and medical professors are or folks in the medical profession are really dealing with this on a high, highly urgent level because it's life or death um, oftentimes. And so they're asking questions like, why wasn't, why in med school wasn't I trained to spot these types of issues in black patients? Yeah. Because we look for signs in their skin, right? We look for redness and purple and like we're trained to look for, and we've never been taught. So Karunashan, my daughter, one of my daughters um, had this medical, really small medical issue um, that, the same issue that I had when I was in my 30s, she had in her 20s. And I took her to the doctor to get the same treatment that I got. We go to the doctor and all the treatment is just like a little, um, uh, uh, I don't even remember what they put under your skin. And they put it under your skin. We ask if there's any like, because I want to teach my, my kids to ask about side effects and all these things, no side effects, no nothing. Two months after the treatment, my child starts having um, loss of pigmentation, dramatic loss of pigmentation. In that area. In that area, exactly where the shot was. Dramatic loss of pigmentation. Mm. And, go, and calls me and goes, mom, this thing is happening. I'm going, no way. But we asked the doctor about side effects. We asked them. We call the doctor and they go, oh, that's really rare. That's a really rare side effect um, of this medication. Yeah, and we look it up and it only happens in people 
with dark brown skin, right? And I sent her to a dermatologist that specializes in patients with dark brown skin and they go, oh God, we see this a lot. You know, we see this a lot. And, um, and it's really strange because like two months after my child's skin is still like whitening in that spot in a way that's like, I, as a mom, I feel so bad. Cause I took, I took her in to get, you know, mm. treated. Cause I was saying, we're going to deal with this. It's not, it's not something that's life threatening, but it's just something that um, causes enough discomfort in her hand that I wanted her to get it checked out. And so, um, and so anyway, long story short, the doctor probably should have given us um, a warning. Doctor should have paid attention to our skin color. <laughs> like, like we like for 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 a white person who doesn't have brown skin to lose pigmentation in that part of their body might not be dramatic at all might not feel dramatic at all but for someone of my skin color to lose significant pigmentation is hurtful um in that part of their skin and my daughter said if they'd have told me this mom I would not have done it if they'd have told me there was a possibility of this happening I would not have done it but my assumption is they don't care for, and this is a type of procedure that probably is a procedure that perhaps a lot of brown folks don't go in for um, or don't have the privilege of going in for, right? Um, perhaps, or perhaps that doctor just doesn't see a lot of brown patients because our brown dermatologist office says, Oh God, that happens a lot, right? And so again, had we consulted with one doctor, we might've gotten different advice on whether or not, or how, how safe that um, product is. But that's just like this, again, it's the same thing. And I was telling my daughter, I'm so sorry. Like, I, I know this, like, I know that, um, but it seems so like such a simple procedure mm-hmm. that, um, that I failed as a mom to ask the types of questions that would have triggered a doctor to look up like on brown skin. Could that, uh, because it was yeah, under it the skin, effect. right? Right, could it have a different effect? And it reminds me of, of like medical language of like, oh, this is standard operating procedure, you know? And it's how that, how the whiteness is built into that, that, oh, it's so rare. Like the fact that you as a mom or as a patient have to be the one inquiring you know, you better ask every question. Is it possible, even plausible that pigmentation, like, how are you going to think of that? You're just getting a simple procedure done. But as a black mom, you have to do. That's what I mean. You do. So you come in there equipped and it's like this one, like you have to come armored with every question because you know better. That's what you're saying. But the fact that you have to know better and then still questions fall below. Yeah. Yeah, that's the that's the like the difference that a lot of white folks don't see is that so when you do those activities, I don't know, you've probably done those activities where you walk into a space and they're doing this like race dialogue or like white privilege exercise and they have you they have all these people stand in line and then they have they ask you all these questions and if you if your answer is yes, you step forward or step backwards if your answer is no, you step and so they'll ask questions like growing up band-aids were close to my skin color or growing up. I saw a lot of 
um, successful people that looked like me on the cover of magazines or when I'm pulled over by a police officer, I typically have this type of experience or like just all these types of questions. Um, I grew up around lots of folks who um, introduced me to like, it's something there's the questions about like, did I grow up in a space where I had lots of mentors uh, who could introduce me to like exciting career opportunities, right? or just all these things. And then when you look up, oftentimes it's the white folks that are at the very front mm. of the line and the really, really, the darker black folks who end up at the back of the, the line. And it's really, it's not made, I think that activity, it's fascinating to me um, how powerful it is for people. But I think that activity is not necessarily designed to make white people feel guilty it's designed to help white people see all the things they don't see, right? And it's designed to also help black and brown folks see all the things they don't see, but that impact us, right? Um, many black and brown people, we talk about these things. Like we know, like those Band-Aids growing up, never, that's like this is the nude color Band-Aid, right? Or nude stockings, nude nylon, right? All the, like really, what it, this is nude for who, right? And so like all these things that you notice and you know, like, you know, these, this is made for white people. This is made for white. You see that whiteness is centered in so many spaces that white people just never, it never occurred to them. But then there's also things that we don't see that never occurred to us, but are real and are impacting us. We also see like the magazines. We know that there's a Jet Magazine because black folks weren't in all the other, and we want to see people who look like us. So we know Jet and Ab Ebony magazine growing up were the magazines that if you wanted to see people who looked like you, who had families like yours, who came from experiences more similar to yours, you're going to see them in a Jet and Ab Ebony magazine. You know, all these other magazines that I can't even name right now because I didn't buy them. But all these other magazines, like, you know, if you want to like learn about the white world, like that's, but you get a lot of that in your just everyday life and everyday media. And so as black folks, we were thirsty and hungry. We tell our kids all the time right now about like how lucky they are to grow up at a time where like they get to have black shows that they think are stupid. Because <laughs> when we were growing up, there were only a couple of black shows and you watched them. It wasn't even a quite like, because you just thought it would, you were fascinated by the fact that black folks got to have a show, you know? So in Living Color, the Cosby show, yes. Um, a Different World. There were certain black shows that every single black person, like if you didn't watch them and you were a black person, like, and you tell me that, like we're scratched, I've never heard of it. I've never heard of black people not watching the Cosby show, A Different World and In Living Color, right? Um, and Living Single, like there's certain shows that we all watch just because we were so proud of them. And now black kids get to, and movies, there's certain movies that every single black teen watched. Um, if you did it, I just don't know how you, how you did it. Like you just didn't grow up in the same ways, in the same type of spaces, but, um, and tuned into the same things, but, Every black teen that I knew at that time was tuned into these things and how wonderful and privileged our kids are today where there's enough black content 
where you get to look down on certain, like you get to, you get to go, oh, that's really stupid. And there's enough um, famous, there's enough genres that black people, black musicians are Mm -hmm. in. There's enough black millionaires. Like this is just starting to happen. Um, And that's a problem (laughs) that this is just starting to happen. And there's reasons that this is only now starting to happen. Um, yeah, I almost but- want to pause you there and just say how the the musicians, the the art, the culture, the literature, the excellence that has come out of Black communities is not new. It's very old, and it just hasn't always had the exposure that mm-hmm. it has today. So when you talk about the privilege of of representation. It's that the channels that artists and people had to go through were white channels. And so now there's more channels to see it. Exactly. Well, and and I think that's like for for me and my husband, when we talk with our children, like we're amazed at the, I mean, we didn't think that there'd be a black president, like really truthfully in our lifetime, um, not sure it'll happen again. <laughs> like just, just because um, unfortunately having a black president in and of itself, no matter what that black president did is, um, is charging enough is like, is, is, has been such a wild experience. Um, but, but still things are possible that, that weren't possible 20 years ago. Um, just like hopefully 20 years from now because of the ways that we show up in the world and the ways that our kids are showing up in the world. Um, things are going to be possible 20 years from now, prayerfully, hopefully, like if we do our work, we're going to create an environment where things are possible, where our my kids who are coming of age now are going to be looking back with their children and going, you're so lucky, lucky. you know, because and unfortunately, maybe a hundred years from now, nobody will be talking about this anymore. Maybe, I hope, right? Maybe a hundred years from now, nobody's gonna, like every, we will have created and structured a society where everyone can presume that wherever they were born, whatever whatever zip code they were born in, whatever community they were born in, whatever color they were born, that they can, predictably accurately <laughs> predict um that they they will have positive outcomes that will not be predictable by the color of their skin like maybe yeah that humanity uh, is centered that their humanity is centered and and that only happens we only get there because we the folks who are like uh, making decisions and operating in this world today um because we have designed and structured it so to be so right we only get there because we've been intentional about it and that's i think my hope for your listeners today is that um they step into these conversations about race and their experience um as a person from whatever identity they're from with a higher level of intention um, and understanding this concept about privilege. People really get um, uh, turned off sometimes when we talk about this concept of white privilege. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the truth is there's male privilege, there's white privilege, like all the identities that we 
built, that we founded this country around are the identities that operate with a higher level of privilege. And as we start to recognize them, like there's privilege that I have um, that people from my community don't have. And I take that really seriously. I own it. It's important that I own it um, and that I leverage the privilege. I got to leverage it for a read to do something with it. Um, And in ways that impact people that can't do that. And so owning our privilege, owning and understanding um, the privilege that we have, even if it's never felt like a privilege before, right? Um, I grew up in a cul-de-sac and, and people my age that grew up in this, there's a lot of, so I sometimes say things like I grew up in the hood and um, people who lived across the street from me um, in, who end up in meetings with me or something will say, wait a minute, I'm sorry. I can't get, let you get away with that. And if you grew up in a cul-de-sac and I'm like, I grew up across the street from you though. And they're like, but you grew up in a cul-de-sac. Like you can't, you, you didn't grow up in the hood. You grew up in a cul-de-sac, but I grew up in a cul-de-sac down the street from all my friends, but they would come over my house and go, you're rich. Like, and I go, no. And they'd call us Cosby's like that. That was a constant, like you have two parents they sit at the table and eat dinner just like they do on the Cosby show, right? And all these things that to me never, because my parents, like, I felt that we didn't have a lot of money. I very much felt the absence of resources, especially going to the private school that I went to. I could see what having resources looked like. And I very much felt like someone who didn't have a lot of privilege. Um, But when I'm in close proximity to people who come over my house and go, you live in a mansion. Mm. no I didn't live in no kind of man but 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 understanding the context like from where they came from to where I live and understanding the context of how other people the privilege that other people did not have now I see my privilege even though I didn't grow up with any recognition of it Mm. so owning and recognizing like I got further than some of my peers did in my career because I started off in a different place. I had things um, working in my favor Mm. from an earlier age than some of my peers had, some of my family members had working Mm. in their favor. So when I compare what I've achieved to what they've achieved, it's no comparison because we started in different places. Mm. And so (laughs) it's really very impossible to compare. And so if I'm a white person who has experienced the world as a person who doesn't feel like I have a lot of privilege, it's only when, again, when I compare myself to other folks and I'm in close proximity to really see and understand how different it was um, for them, then I can see, oh, wow, okay, I can understand how being white in America allowed me to start in a different position from a different position in every system that I was in than someone who didn't have this privilege, even though I, I never experienced it as a privilege as a child. Yeah. And yeah. then owning, you know, we have a lot of, I have friends who are uh, white folks who are processing this privilege conversation. Mm. And we say oftentimes like own it, like own the privilege because we need you to show up in your full whiteness, right? In your full white privilege seat because you can do a lot of good there. Yes. And a lot of people feel nasty about that and feel gross about it. But if you're doing good, 
do the good, stand on that privilege and do the good that you can do. Mm. Just like I have privilege because I grew up in a middle-class home. Mm. I have um, things and spaces that that puts me in. uh, 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 People that that has put me in front of that I can speak to and have conversations with on behalf of folks who can't have those conversations. Yes. So I better own it. And so we're asking people just to like live in that and think about what it looks like to leverage their privilege for good. And if they can do that, then they're making the type of difference where my kids 20 years from now will be telling their babies, like, you don't even know, like things were so different back then. Um, and that would, that'll be a beautiful thing. Yeah. I just, I, I think this is such a beautiful uh, wrap up point because there's layers of privilege, right? And we might be, we might have a subjugated identity in some aspect of ourselves, and then we can have a privileged identity. And going back to what you said, one of the main things trying that your work is trying to unroot is making it this or that when really we can be both, right? We could be not privileged in this way and privileged in this way. And a part of this work of equity building work is to just acknowledge what is, not all of the baggage that comes with the 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 not being able to talk about it, like own it. The more we can own what we are, we can start unpacking all that comes with that. That's right. And you being able to acknowledge through contextual environment where somebody comes over and sees your household, it's not a mansion, it's a middle-class family. But what it's speaking to is kind of generational pain that within Black your, your community, some people have experienced that maybe you didn't in the sense that your family was a two-person household, your parents your mom was an educator and she was quite involved and in your education and your father is a police officer and the ways that their professionalism influenced supporting you to navigate educational worlds to become the best, your version of what they're, what they wanted their children to be able to experience. And yet other people didn't have a two person household, didn't have involvement. Like I could be a subjugated self where I didn't have parental involvement in my education. There are all ways that we have different identities, but we can't negate race at the expense of these other areas, like that acknowledgement. It's just, you bring such wisdom to this conversation that allows, I can tell it allows all people, but allows white people to really start facing themselves. Like once they come across that line, as you said. Once you're on that line, we can we I can work with you. I got a lot to I right. got a lot to come share. Across, come across the line. And there's a and for folks who are interested in just like, I don't know, to the extent that you folks read, there's and and listen to podcasts, there's so many resources um out there for folks to just kind of like tune into yes. if they're trying to learn. Because one of the most powerful things is um hearing from other folks, learning other narratives. Yes. Um, There is a podcast that um, my brother-in-law does. It's called Counter Stories. Hmm. Um, It used to be on NPR and I can't remember, but if you look it up, the folks can find it. Um, And it has this diverse group of friends uh, in diverse professions, really amazing leaders all in in their own rights. And they, they talk about current events 
And their goal is to like share a counter, counter narratives, narratives that are not always showing up in like mainstream media. And so that's a really powerful space. Again, allowing you to hear other perspectives. There's books, if folks are interested in um, learning about stories like Rondo, the Rondo story. My father wrote a book, it's called Diesel Heart. Um, and it, it, well, I think it's available on Amazon. Um, if folks are in Minnesota, the, the Minnesota um, Historical System, or the, the, ah, the, I can't think of the name of it right now, but the theater, um, it's, there's going to be a um, production of Diesel Heart. Um, what? All of the month, yep. All of the month, well, I think it starts on uh, March 11th. It opens on March 11th. And so it'll this be up year? this year. So excited. Cause I have the, but it I really appreciated so much. It's so vivid. He, you know, the way he describes his childhood. Yeah. He gave me the book the last time I haven't I finished, you. but I'm taking it in parts because it's, it's very visceral and it's very vivid of the experience of awakening to who he what who he is and yes. the experiences because you don't know who you are if you've never seen something else. Yeah. And, right? and it's, it's at the history theater. I kept wanting to say the Minnesota mm. theater, but the history theater in St. Paul is, is producing it. And, um, and some really cool people are, are like Brian Grandison. I don't know if you know Brian, but he probably did some work theater stuff at central. Right, and, right. and, uh, and so that'll be really cool. But there's a bunch and there's a bunch of so so in my father's book, he talks about the Rondo, his experience on Rondo, and it's really powerful. But he also talks about some of the other things that were happening, like in in black communities at yeah. that time it was coming up. But there's other books like um, Gwendolyn Brooks has a book on Rondo. There's so many places where folks can kind of read about experience, like listen to learn. For folks who just are feel detached from some of these stories and some of this yeah. history, which like we all are, um, because we're not learning these things. We didn't learn in school growing up how um, you know black communities were like doing. There was such wealth in black communities and such power, and they created their own economies and only to be destroyed. Many of them, most of them, systematically, systematically across the country. We did not learn that. We just learned that like. Black people are poor, like, and it's, and that's too bad, right? <laughs> that's right. We have never learned. Bad choices, back to right. that. It must be bad, bad choices. It must be that they're committing, it must be all these things, right? As opposed to um, some of the truths about how we got to where we are. And as we start to realize that more and more, I think it gives us an idea of some of the things that we can do to help disrupt some of these um, system, systemic uh, injustices that are happening and, and help rewire the systems, you know, That's right. that have some level of influence in. Yeah. And, you know, I just want to speak to, to white folks and just saying that, that there is something that happens over time, generationally, when we've been muted, when you can't feel, when you're not allowed to express, when you're not allowed to, to, have safe environments, to have your feelings. And that's a systematic, systemic byproduct of these kind of white infused institutionalized spaces by design. And so not only are they causing harm for black and brown bodies and, and other cultured bodies, um, but they're causing harm to us because so many of us can't feel very basic aspects of our own humanity and our own numbness 
is a result of, of not being able to, and when Anika, when you're speaking to creating and fostering new environments that lots of people are feeling better in, lots of people can breathe differently. That's what this is really about. It's that as white people, we have to reclaim our humanity and our right to it and our right to our own culture that, that has gotten buried in it. And so of course we're extracting and borrowing culture because it's all we've ever, it's the only spaces we've ever found where there's life, you know, and breath and juiciness and whatever the joy and excitement. Yeah. Yeah. And connectivity. And that's literally how I felt when I moved from Phoenix to Minnesota and I met Anika, you and your family and, and, and the Carter family. Like it was, it was really a, uh, uh, literally like a rich um, b- uh, veil got pierced of mine that says, wow, there's a lot of stories here. So instead of being afraid of this quote community that my dad's family warned me about, I got to get into the community and go visit places and meet people and appreciate the history and learn the stories, which only fostered more questions that I asked, which you know, produce more learning. So I just really like what you've brought here in that as white people, we have a chance to reclaim ourselves so that we get to be a part of a process of, of centering trust and respect of all of us, of all people. Right. Right. And love. I, I, it's really funny how people, I don't know, like love belongs in that uh, conversation because yeah. Um, one of the things that I think ha- has allowed us to lose our humanity um, and not to, to, to not recognize other people's humanity is to lose our own, right? Yeah. And so, and and so, so the so, reckoning of whiteness, to, to, of white people to actually have look at the amount of generations that we've had to cut off our humanity and witness atrocity and terror and not... Be, not do anything. And and of course there's abolitionist histories in our own families, but we have to start digging in to know what our history is, not just pretend that it doesn't matter. Yep. Yep. And I think, and as we, and and that's the other part. Um, One of the things that has been powerful as I've been sharing my family's story, in part the Rondo story um, with a lot of groups is that people stop and go, I don't even know my own family story, you know? Like, I wonder, you know, it makes me wonder what I would learn if I pulled up. And I just encourage people to do that because it was such a powerful experience for me. Um, And for some reason, even though I know I've heard bits and pieces of the Rondo story growing up, um, it's brought me closer to my ancestors, learning and understanding what drove them and really learning to appreciate um, what I have because they gave something up and um, mm-hmm. and the traumas that they went through and were still my grandfather uh, especially the traumas that he went through including losing his homes he had buildings like he had he had wealth and and knowing who my grandfather was he passed about six years ago but knowing who he was, one of the most important things to him in the world in, in his final years was being like um, preserving what he was leaving for us, right? Making sure that he could leave uh, some resources for his family and knowing what was taken from him and what he would have been able to leave had it not been taken from him. 
mm. is really powerful um, for, for me. And then, you know, going back further and realizing that at every point, when we think of like how, you know, devastating some of the realities for black folks are yeah. in this country and in the community that I live in, um, it, we can forget how much they built at every generation that was taken or oh, that they had to flee from, right? They built and then they had to flee mm. and then they built and it was taken. And then they, right, they just at every generation built. Yes. And just being able for me just to celebrate that, even though they weren't able to pass on the generational wealth to us. This has been since slavery, right? Yes. Since like since they since our ancestors were stolen and brought to this country, stolen from the communities that they loved um, and brought to this country. And since their freedom was stolen and their children's freedom was stolen and their children were stolen from them and their right to choose who they would have children with and when they would procreate was stolen from them. Like all these things that were stolen and that they didn't have the opportunity to build onto every generation. Yes. Um, just understanding that that happened then and it's still happening now in, in different ways and at different levels. And for me, it's just inspiration to continue pushing and to continue disrupting because there are some, some structures, some systems, some movement uh, of the way energy is moving um, in this world that I want to disrupt um, so that the ways that my grandfather created, like the ways that he disrupted and his parents disrupted in order to make my life possible and the life that I live possible, I am committed to disrupting in ways that make the life that my children, my grandchildren, my great-grandchildren possible. And I hope that that's the way that everybody's thinking of it. I, in advance, think of myself as an ancestor one day, right? like, like very much in advance. And I'm thinking about, um, not in a morbid way, um, but to me in a way that like, honors my grandparents and my great-grandparents thinking about what I'm leaving for you know, my descendants. So um, if we're all thinking that way, I think, you know, your listeners are thinking about honoring their ancestors and, and their descendants in those ways. I think we're, we're all building something much more powerful. Yeah. And noticing the disconnect in our own stories and that, wow, the, the humanity that we've lost and what that means to reclaim as we are learning about the real things that took place. We get to look at our own origin stories and not be afraid of what is there and how, what it means to pass on afraid of the history and that this is a story that happens for a lot of quote, well-meaning white people because we're not doing some of that self-examination because we just haven't had to navigating time and space doesn't demand or command it of us. So by the simple things you're talking about, centering love, focusing on, on caring and kindness over being a, a perceived good person. <laughs> so simple. And yet when our histories are rooted in so much terror and violence. There's a reason why we're so bottled up in guilt and shame. It's not just our, ours personally to unravel communally. This happened to communities, not to individuals. And so our origin stories matter. 
you bring really a lot of beautiful language, a lot of wisdom, ancient wisdom, present day wisdom, um, and a lens that's just um, excellence all around. And I just, I can't thank you enough, Nika, for being who you are and also bringing these conversations here. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I've enjoyed and appreciated the conversation and, and excited about the space you've created for these talks. So I will be tuning in. Yeah, excellent. You know, we're having all sorts of um, conversations on predatory patterns in culture. And, you know, the more we can, a lot of the things you brought up are things I teach outside of the conversation of race, particularly, but I wanted to highlight it because we can't deny the importance of, of that as an identification. And we want to merge to the human identification. We're all human, but we don't get to do that without reckoning the history of cultural code and color code because color code has affected all of us, um, obviously differently, but it has affected all of us and all of our ability to be in connection and be in love and to feel and exchange love. Um, so I, I just, I, I really appreciate you. Um, we are going to wrap up with your song and uh, you spoke to uh, Stevie Wonder's song and yeah. wouldn't want to give us a little lead in as to why it's called higher ground. And, um, and I do a little singing and I love to, I, I enjoy it. It's a fun song by Stevie Wonder. Um, <laughs> and it, in some ways it connects very, very connected to this conversation. Um, his words, um, gonna keep on trying till I reach my higher ground. Uh, and he talks about trying again, right? And the fact that, you know, we've, we've made mistakes in our past, but we're gonna keep on trying. It's actually a, a fun celebratory song, uh, very much less about the mistakes in our past and far more about uh, the journey to keep on trying. So that is why I chose it. Thank you for that. It reminds me of what you were speaking right before around each generation, that rebuilding, you know, that way of, of uh, you know, whole communities destroyed and then rebuilding, whole families terrorized and just the, uh, the complexity of the historical terror from slavery all the way through the generations. And not just excellence, but like genres of music new levels of 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 birthing of of orators musicians uh intellectuals academics at all levels of society and that um again speaking to the song but just what it means is to in for community to center itself and what magic and brilliance happens when communities keep centering themselves, even when the state and the governments aren't allowing them to be fully whole. That's right. And they will. And that's the other thing I'll just um, end on perhaps, uh, Guru Nishan, is that um, there are so many folks that say, you know, can't remember we started this conversation off with some, some discussion about uh, the Super Bowl, I think it was, and how yes. uh, people just feel like there should be one America, one national anthem, one this, one that. And the truth is, until we make it so, right, until we make sure that we are centering all people, like we have to actively do that, not passively, yes. uh, not just because we're good people, generally it'll all fall into place, but because we are intent on making sure 
that our systems and our structures are structured and designed for everyone's well-being and for good positive outcomes for everyone, including our criminal justice system, including our education system, including you know, the way that you know, housing, et cetera, um, then there will be groups of people that have to create it for themselves. And you will never get to that vision of like, can't we just all get along? Can't we just all be one America? Can't we just all have one national anthem? So we have to make sure that our systems are everybody's system, yeah. right? We have to make sure before, and then we can make sure that our songs are everybody's songs. <laughs> we have work to do to get there. We can't just wish it so. We can't just say, can't you ignore, can't you let go of your black colleges? There shouldn't be black colleges that, you know, there shouldn't be black national anthem, there shouldn't be this. We have to make the, the conditions, we have to create yes. the conditions under which this is actually real and true. And we're on our way, uh, but we all kind of have to be in the in the huddle. Like we all have to be on the same page about what it looks like to get there. And so hoping this conversation that you're creating is helping us to head there. Um, it sure feels like it must be. So thank you for doing this. Yes. And thank you. And thank you, Stevie Wonder. Let's listen a little bit. Yes. And um, of course, for copyright purposes, we don't listen to the whole thing. But folks, you can listen to the um, Spotify playlist and it will be in the notes. So every episode we add another song. And here we go. Thank you so much for tuning in. And Anika Ward, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, be with us today and bringing your expertise, your perspective, your lens, your brilliance, your voice, um, and your love. Thank you for having me. It's great to see you. Great to see you too. The information presented in this podcast are for general educational purposes only. The views and opinions expressed are solely the views of the individuals involved. By listening, you agree not to use this podcast as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others, including but not limited to patients that you are treating. Nothing in this podcast is intended to replace the services of a trained therapist, doctor, or health professional, or otherwise to substitute for professional mental health, medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Guru Nishan LLC and affiliate organizations shall under no circumstances be liable to any listener of the podcast or viewer for any action or inaction on your part as a result of the content you consume on this podcast or for any adverse reaction, including any emotional distress you experience as a result of consuming this podcast.